0: Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In this season three, we've been looking at the world of Jesus. But now, since we're getting close to Christmas, I want to take a couple of episodes and look at Jesus' parents. And the story that we're going to talk about this morning is is the story of Mary and the visit by the angel Gabriel to tell her or to foretell that she would give birth to the Savior. It's a story known so well that we probably could recite it by heart, but I'm hoping that we can start to see this in a new way. And before I read it to you, I want to begin with with an ear towards the declarative nature of God's plan, or more specifically, the use of the word will. This will happen this way. You will name the child Jesus. He will be called the Son of God. He will do this, and you will do this. In other words, I want you to hear this story with the understanding that God has got a plan, and Mary needs to say yes. Mary doesn't have a whole lot of wiggle room and how this plan is going to happen. God's got a plan, and that plan is going to happen. It's her job to get on this train. I have an old story from one of my favorite people, my ordaining bishop, man named Bishop Stow, used to tell the story of leadership when he was a young priest, using the analogy of Paul uh, saying that we're all members of the body of Christ. Do you remember that famous story that, that some of us are a hand and some of us are an eye and we're all parts of the body of Christ? And he was a young priest, a young, ambitious priest with vision. And he got a he had a dream one night that God told Bishop Stow—not Bishop then, just Bill stow uh, that he would be the big toe in the body of Christ. That would be God's plan. And I guess I guess this young clergy person thought that he had the chops to negotiate with God about that plan or to remind God that he had vision. He said he told God in the dream, I don't want to be the big toe in the body of Christ. I can see things. Let me be the eye. Let me be the the eye in the body. And God said back to Bill Stowell, well, Billy, that's just great. I'll let you be the eye, but all you're going to see is the inside of a sock. See, sometimes there's a plan that's just bigger than us. It's our job to get on the train. So this is the birth of Jesus foretold in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. Catching all the wills in here? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month of her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. Dominating the tiny village of Nazareth today, and it's bigger today than it was then, but it's still nothing to really shake your finger at. Uh, dominating the tiny village of Nazareth today is the Basilica of the Annunciation, a church that commemorates the site, of uh, the story that I just read to you. Now, It sits over the traditional site of the visit by the angel Gabriel, but there's really nowhere to know. Uh, But I will say that much like the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem, it's close. If if a place like this is pitching horseshoes when it comes to did it really happen here, it's a pretty close game of horseshoes, because Nazareth was a pretty tiny and significant town. The church itself is built over a first-century structure that Jesus would have known, could have touched, could have been inside. Uh, It's it's built on a first-century street that Jesus would have walked, so it's an important pilgrimage site for that reason alone. But there's another reason why you need to go see the Basilica of of the Annunciation, and it's simply because the story has become so popular in art. Especially Renaissance artists, they were really taken with this story to the point that its portrayal became very formulaic. Just simply search on your phone's uh, Annunciation in Art, and you'll see hundreds and hundreds of Renaissance depictions, and they're always the same. Mary's wearing blue. She's either kneeling or reading or holding a lily. Uh, sometimes uh, the angel is outside the window. Sometimes the angel is on the porch. There's always an open window, et cetera, et cetera, for the Holy Spirit to come blowing in. What we will kind of try to do today is go with what we know from scripture alone and perhaps unpack all these traditional images or all these Christmasy images and see if we can't, one, see Mary for who she really is and two, unpack a mystery in the story using both the text and the science of biblical archaeology. That's what I'm going to try to do anyway. So first, if we look at the Bible alone, here's what we don't know. One, we don't know Mary's parents, although we can assume she's from Nazareth. We don't know Mary's age, although it was common to be engaged at 13. We don't know Joseph's age, although it's assumed he's old because he disappears early in the story. But we are told in Luke chapter 1 that she visits her cousin Elizabeth, who was a woman who also had trouble getting pregnant which is a theme we'll see in the Bible again and again. You know, The pain of barren women is a pain that all of us will know in some form or fashion. And as a minister, I like to call it hitting a wall. At some point, if we live long enough, we will hit a wall. Doors of opportunity will close. We will be at the end of our collective ropes. Uh, we will not be able to see the horizon. And yet it is in these times that we find that the hand holding ours is a hand that has nail prints within it. A hand holding ours is a hand from our God who knows what it's like uh, to, to have hit a wall and knows what it's like to have been in despair and will lead us through to the other side. And so for this reason, again and again, this theme of barren women seems to come up both in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the Gospels as a story of God's hope, even in hard times or hope even when we can't see it. And so in Luke chapter 1, you've got Mary, who's pregnant now with a child of the Holy Spirit. Uh, working a plan that seems impossible to her, but nothing's impossible for God. Visiting Elizabeth, who's now finally with child, and both of these sons will be given to God. Remember the story? And then the child in Elizabeth's womb leaps with joy, and Elizabeth says this. This is Luke chapter 1, beginning with the 41st verse. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And it's here that Mary would sing. Now, it's important to remember that some scripture is poetry. And an important poetic device that survives translation to this day is something called synonymous parallelism, which sounds like a mouthful, but it really means saying the same thing twice. We do this all the time, especially in the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Those are parallels. And here in Mary's song, Mary would do the same thing. It goes like this. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Same thing twice. For he has looked with favor upon the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now all generations shall call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. One, two, one, two, one, two. So she starts with synonymous parallelism and then she shifts to contrasting parallels, which is another poetic device. Verse 52 He's brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. One, two. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. One, two. So here lies a mystery. Okay, Mary uses synonymous parallelism and contrasting parallelism in her song. But this song has been sung before. Same shape, same style, same length, same message. As a matter of fact, this song was sung a thousand years before. And it's a story found in the book, First Samuel. I'll paraphrase it. I'll tell it to you. It goes like this. A man named Elimelech has two wives. And one of his wives bears many children. The other wife was barren. Remember the theme of barren women, this wall? Uh, that, that somehow people can't see their way over, and God intervenes. This caused her great distress. Her name was Hannah, and especially when they would travel to Shiloh for the yearly Thanksgiving sacrifice. Shiloh was the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested for centuries, and it was the place that before the temple would be where the tabernacle and the tent and the presence of God would be there. And before the altar of God, Hannah would cry her eyes out, and she made a promise one day that if somehow God would give her a son, uh, that, uh, that she would give this child back to God. The priest Eli heard her and announced that all this would come true. Samuel was born. The great prophet Samuel was born to Hannah. And so she sang. And the song is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And it's the same song as the song of Mary, which brings us to the mystery. How and why? How and why does this song appear a thousand years apart in our scriptures, one in the Hebrew scriptures, one in the Gospels. Well, medieval theologians would say that Mary was a scholar, and I, I guess that's why she's reading a book in those Renaissance paintings. But that seems a stretch to me. So I'll walk us through an exercise that I will call scriptural archaeology to see if we can not answer the question. It goes back to Luke chapter one in the 39th ninth verse. We're told that Mary visited Elizabeth here. In those days, Mary set out and went in haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. A Judean house, a Judean house in the hill country. Now, there is a town in the hill country just outside of Jerusalem called Ein Karim, and it claims to be that place. Ein Karim literally means spring of the vineyard, and it's nice. It's a high-end place with nice coffee shops and cobblestone streets, and good-looking uh, good looking houses, and, and good-looking gardens, and it's the traditional home of John the Baptist, and Elizabeth, and Zechariah. And hey, if it's not uncaringly, it'd be another, because priestly families had an inherited job, and an inherited wealth, and, and an ability to live in a little nicer area so that they could serve uh, the temple. And that brings us back to one of the first episodes of season three. Remember, I told you that John the Baptist was a sensation because he walked away from that world. He walked away from that life. Uh, he had a job as a Baptist on the southern steps of the Temple Mount, and yet he left that good job and went down to the Jordan River to to a place to wash in, that was wild and free and away from the temple, if you will, away from industrial religion, and it caused a sensation because he had the chops to leave it. But let's not forget, if it's not Ayn Karim, it's another. And that also helps us to answer the question, how? How could a peasant girl from Nazareth know a song from 1,000 years before? The answer is Ayn Karam." She was from an educated family. She was a girl from a good family with opportunities to learn. Which also brings me to something that I find kind of sad, We can't know for sure, but something must have happened in Mary's family for her to have to live in Nazareth. Mary was a girl with a sad story from the beginning. Nazareth is not a nice place like Ein Karim. Nazareth uh, is a downgrade from a place like Ein Karim. In, In a past episode in season three, we talked about the reality of taxes in their world and how rolling tax debt could move people to places or move them off into the margins where they didn't ever want to live. Uh, one example would be Joseph and his family. We, By tradition, we call Joseph a carpenter, but the, word, the original word is tekton, which means laborer, and it was no upgrade from their agrarian ideal for Joseph not to be a farmer. But what could have happened, which happened to so many, is that absentee landlords gobbled up the land after rolling taxes, forced them away from their traditional lifestyle into a place like Nazareth, which looks like a pile of rocks now, and it was a pile of rocks then. And so Mary, from a family that lives in Ankarim to live in Nazareth, means that something bad happened to her. And now she's betrothed to an old man. Here's my conclusions when it comes to Mary. I mean, Mary is a girl in a tough spot who's hit the wall. But then again, that's the story of God's activity in our lives, right? God uses people in tough spots. God uses forgotten people. God uses left-behind people, God uses powerless people, and God uses all of us when we have the courage to say yes. Here's my conclusion. Mary was tough, and she would need it. In our episode last week, we tried to uncover some of the Christmas pageant details when it comes to Bethlehem, and we talked about the scene in Luke chapter 2 where Mary and Joseph travel back to Bethlehem because the emperor wanted his subjects counted and taxed, and there was no room for them in the inn. And so for us, traditionally, we figured that there was no room in the hotel, so Mary and Joseph had to stay in a barn, in a stable, when in reality, that word inn comes from the King James version of the story, even the Charlie Brown Christmas version of the story. The word inn properly translated as guest room of the house, which means that Mary carried with her a whiff of scandal to the point that Joseph's own family wouldn't take her in. Christmas would, wouldn't would even have a honeymoon to it. This story would hurt. This plan of God's would hurt from the very beginning, but she would go the distance. And of all the places that you can travel to in the land of the Bible, that you know that Mary was there, you can go to Nazareth and you can know that Mary was there. You can go to Bethlehem, you can know that Mary was there. But you can also go to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is Golgotha, and you know that Mary was there. She was there at the beginning. And she was there at the end, the first day of his life. In the last day of his earthly life, she was pre resurrected life, however you want to say it, she was there. She went the distance for her son, she went the distance for us. He will be named Jesus, and he will be called the Son of God, and we will be saved because of a girl from a good family living in Nazareth. That's what I'm thinking about Mary. Hey, stick with me next week, and we'll talk about Joseph. Thanks.